Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. Welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board. I'm John Bunton, staff correspondent for Governing Magazine, guest hosting for Ben Eagles. Our guest today is Zach McCarty. Zach is a transit and transportation expert. For the past four months, he's been working on a case study of what went wrong with the Let's Move Transit Initiative, which was rejected overwhelmingly by Nashvilleans a year ago today. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about what went wrong, drawing on more than 40 interviews that Zach conducted with policymakers, transit advocates, transit critics. We'll also be talking about the elements of an effective transit system, uh, what uh, transit in Nashville should look like in the future, and we'll conclude with a discussion of his website, Churning Man. Check it out now. You won't want to miss this conversation. So, Zach, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So let's talk about how a person becomes a transit transportation wonk. How did you get into this area? Yeah, so my background um, academically is in engineering and, and public policy. I got um, really interested in, in urban planning by way of a sort of career-long focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So global warming is my uh, professional challenge of choice. Um, I, after I got interested in urban planning, you know, understanding public transit uh, is, is a really natural fit. So I um, ended up working at Transit Center, the organization who's also supporting the case study I've been working on. Uh, they're a national organization that works to improve transit in, in U.S. cities. Why was Transit Center interested in doing a case study on what happened in Nashville? Why would a New York-based uh, research group be interested in, in us? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple pieces of the answer to that question. Um, the first is that that even though Transit Center is based in New York, they're interested in making transit better across the country. Um, the Nashville referendum attracted a lot of national attention, but it's also of national um, interest. Uh, it's 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 also of natural interest because the issues that were at play in the Nashville referendum are likely to be at play in a lot of other cities where transit investments are going to be really important. So it's a relatively progressive city in a relatively conservative state. It's growing really fast. It has really uh, quickly increasing transportation challenges. Um, and in order to solve those, they're going to, uh, Nashville's going to need to raise revenue. Uh, a lot of other cities are going to be in that position. And so understanding how you win a ballot referendum like this is really important. So let's get into what happened and what didn't happen with the Let's Move um, ballot initiative. I want to start by going back to the planning process, and in particular to uh, the planning process that began with the in-motion regional plan. First, could you tell us a little bit, remind us what in-motion was and how this region went about coming up with a strategic plan for transportation? Yeah, well, it's worth going back even just before and motion to what's known as the the AMP proposal um, in Nashville, which was uh, also a transit project proposed uh, by the Dean administration. It was one corridor. It would have been a a rapid bus or bus rapid transit service uh, that connected the eastern and western parts of the city. Um, That that also failed. It wasn't a public vote. It was just a proposal that was withdrawn by the mayor's office. And um, long story short, in the aftermath of that project's failure, um, the transit agency and the city were able to um, kind of salvage some of the federal funding they had been awarded to support this regional plan. Part of the feedback that they had gotten loud and clear during the public conversation about the AMP was that it, it wasn't a comprehensive plan. There wasn't a vision for uh, Nashville-wide and perhaps region-wide transit improvements. So uh, the Nashville Metropolitan Transit Authority undertook uh, this study and motion. Um, they did public outreach throughout the city, throughout the region. They uh, landed on this strat- strategic plan and motion, which was adopted by both the boards of the uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority, which is specific to Nashville and Davidson County, uh, and then also adopted by the board of the Regional Transit Authority, which serves... Um, I think 
10 or 13 counties. Now, as I recall, the InMotion plan uh, invited people to participate online, and it presented three options, kind of a very built-out, density, well-served-by-transit option, an option which would have perhaps had more of a suburban clustering focus, if I remember correctly, and then a third option which really wouldn't have done uh, that much at all. Could you sort of talk about those three options, you know, how are they structured and, and, and what did participants express a preference for? I think you've relatively fairly described the three options. I, I would describe them as just kind of a, a low, a medium, and a high investment scenario. So the low investment scenario was about a 30 to $40 million operating budget increase for bus service. Would have expanded services somewhat considerably, but not been, you know, a sea change in transit. Um, the second option was um, uh, only improved bus service, um, but significant improved bus service throughout the region. Um, that was about a $90 million operating increase. Um, and then the the third option um, was uh, anchored by a strong light rail network that would have connected Nashville to many of the, the regional um, suburban centers. Um, the feedback that the Nashville MTA got during the outreach process supported the, the latter. So the more expensive light rail anchored system, um, that was uh, the scenario that got the support of basically every group that they interviewed. Um, but support wasn't consistent across those groups. So um, in fact, the, the group of, of people who the transit agency surveyed who were least supportive of that were their existing transit riders, so people who currently ride the bus in Nashville. Oh, wow. So just to make sure I understand that, the, the group least supportive of the most ambitious system, which involved building light rail, was the group which actually uses the current system. Yeah, and, and I found that surprising, and I think it raises a little bit of a red flag, which we'll come back to later in this conversation. Um, but what those transit riders really wanted was near-term immediate improvements, things that would help them tomorrow have better access to their jobs, to healthcare, to education, um, to the things that they do every day, which they rely on the transit system for. That's fascinating. So that definitely uh, seems like a bit of a red flag, particularly in hindsight. Um, I guess at the time, though, well, at the time, did people, did policymakers, uh, you know, people in the Barry administration see that as a concern or did they interpret the strong general preference for the most ambitious plan as a mandate to move forward with something really ambitious? Well, I can't speak to the specific conversations that the Barry administration had at the time, but I will say that kind of you see throughout the Let's Move Nashville planning process, and I think in, to an extent during the actual political campaign, um, what you might describe as confirmation bias. So I think that in addition to the fact that you know the transit agency genuinely was hearing from the people it was talking to that this light rail heavy, you know, much more expansive plan was favored, um, I think there was also a sense, particularly um, from the kind of political elite, from business leaders in Nashville, that that light rail was what Nashville needed and what what um, you know civic leaders in Nashville were pushing for. And is that because it's something that uh, our peer cities had when people visited Denver or um, Seattle, they were seeing that type of infrastructure? And yeah, I think that that. Um, elected officials and, and business leaders in Nashville are, are really focused on making sure that Nashville remains competitive, you know, competitive with peer cities like Denver, um, kind of aspirational peer cities who have, you know, more comprehensive transit infrastructure. Um, and I think that that's, that can be a little bit misguided. What makes Denver's transit system good isn't necessarily that it's light rail. Um, where Denver's transit system is good, it's because it's fast, frequent, and reliable. It has good walking access. And in fact, Denver is commonly stood up as this really good example, but it's very far from the best example of good transit in the U.S. Um, Seattle would be a much, much better example where they really are investing in a strong, um, fast, frequent bus network. Um, and they also have light rail, but the bus system is really what, what makes their transit system sing. 
And this is this is fascinating. Before we sort of get into uh, best practices in this area, I want to spend a little time on how uh, Let's Move Nashville played out. Um, before I ask you how the in motion um, sort of co- public consultation process translated into a specific policy proposal, I, tell us a little bit about. Um, about this case study, I mean, you, you know, who are some of the people that you spoke to? I don't know if you can use names or if you can just sort of describe their position, but how comprehensive an overview do you think you got of of uh, how the transit initiative process played out? Um, well, I think it was pretty comprehensive. I can't uh, I can't give names. Part of the value of these interviews is because they were basically conducted on background. People could feel a little bit more comfortable um, in general, uh, giving me their kind of frank assessment of what happened. Um, but in these over more than 40 conversations, um, I spoke to everybody from volunteer-based community activists to senior executives and elected officials um, on both sides of the campaign. So people who were opposed to it, people who were paid to oppose it, um, people who volunteered their time to oppose it, as well as people who were paid and volunteered to, um, to support it and put a lot of time and effort into doing so. And I also got a chance to talk to some folks who were kind of more on the sidelines as interesting adver- ad, uh, observers, including journalists um, and, and elected officials who, who weren't, you know, right in the debate, but were, you know, very interested and engaged. Fantastic. I'm convinced that you know more about this than probably a- anyone else, except for perhaps a handful of policymakers. Um, so let's get into the process of, uh, of how the Let's Move plan was created. Talk about how that came together. How did this specific proposal take shape? Yeah. So in the wake of the passage of what's called the Improve Act, which was state legislation that enabled Nashville and other cities and counties in Tennessee to hold transit ballot measures in the first place. Um, After that act was passed, which was uh, in April of 2017, um, the mayor's office moved pretty quickly to say, okay, we've got this enabling legislation. Um, Now we need to make transit improvements happen in Nashville. So uh, Mayor Barry convened a group of her senior staff and advisors, including the leaders of the Public Works Department, of the MTA, um, her uh, COO of the city, um, some of her close informal political advisors, um, got those folks together um, and said, OK, what are we going to do? What is the plan going to be? So they worked for um, basically uh, what turned out to be about four months, starting in about June of 2017 to October, to put together this plan. They worked in almost total secrecy. They had um, very limited contact kind of with the outside world. They brought in a couple of consultants to do the kind of technical planning um, on both the uh, rail planning uh, work and the bus system planning. They brought in Goldman Sachs to work on the the financial planning for the design. And um, they basically, uh, Mayor Barry gave the team a mandate to produce as big of a plan as possible, um, which they felt that that she would be able to pass um, in uh, in the election in 2018. That's interesting. So when when the mandate was to do something as big as possible, was there a sense of what the funding constraints would be at that point? Was there already the idea of um, asking for a sales tax increase that... I guess would begin by being a half cent and then rise to being a full cent. Yeah, I'd say at the in the early stages of the conversation, I think it was already clear that they would have to rely on on sales tax. They had done a pretty comprehensive survey. Um, uh, the the chamber had actually funded a, a study that surveyed basically the landscape of possible funding options. The legislation that was passed gave a pretty short list of funding options. Um, taxes that the the city already levies. Um, And sales tax among those is the only one that can really generate sufficient revenue to support a plan of this scale. Um, Early in the planning process, they anticipated um, a half cent sales tax increase. But over the course of that, you know, very rapid fire planning process, um, the scope of the plan increased substantially. So they ended up going with that full cent and then um, adding three other taxes as well. Fascinating. Um, the eventual plan that emerged uh, w- certainly did represent, in many ways, the expansive version of In Motion. Um, four light rail lines, dedicated bus rapid transit, a tunnel under downtown, um, 
It had some very expensive components. There were immediate concerns about the cost of, of some of these elements. Uh, there was also the emergence of a coordinated campaign to stop transit. When did that uh, anti-transit effort begin? Yeah, so the No Tax Free Tracks campaign, which is the the you know funded, organized campaign opposition effort, and there were a number of other kind of independent spokespeople who aligned themselves with the No Tax Free Tracks campaign. There was uh, another kind of volunteer driven effort called Better Transit for Nashville. There were a number of opponents, but No Tax for Tracks is really who I will refer to as the opposition. Um, Their campaign came together starting in late 2017 once uh, once the mayor had announced that this was really happening and would happen in May 2018. Um, And then they launched the campaign in January. Um, When they launched, they weren't feeling extremely confident. They thought that this was going to be really an uphill battle. Um, there are stories uh, of the um, of the no tax for tracks um, campaign manager telling his funders that they should be wary of spending too much money because they might just be throwing it down the drain. And let's before, let's just pause there and ask who were the funders of no tax for tracks? Who was behind that? That the, the who was financing that group? Well, there are a handful of local business people who are um, who who donated to the campaign, um, sort of on on the record, you know, uh, and uh, and that group would include that would group would include folks like Lee Beeman, uh, Joe Scarlett, um, uh, and and Mark Bloom, um, three of the people who who are kind of known to be um, kind of senior leaders in this opposition campaign. But the bulk of the opposition campaign's funding, I think about 75% of it came from anonymous donors funneled through a, uh, a, a super PAC called um, Nashville Smart Inc. Um, and it's not, it's not known. They don't have to disclose who those funders are. Um, the folks that I talked to believe that most of that funding um, came from, from local donors, um, not as has widely been speculated from the Koch brothers. But... Uh, we we won't know for sure. Okay. Interesting. And so as this began, there was there was a sense that uh, this was an uphill battle, and presumably that was because uh, Mayor Megan Barry was an extraordinarily popular mayor who was strongly behind the "Let's Move" plan. Yeah. Well, this this was the mayor's plan. She had been driving it um, from the beginning. She was um, anticipated to be the the face of the campaign. Um, of course, as everyone uh, knows who's likely to be listening to this podcast, um, she uh, announced an affair and there was a, a scandal that ensued. She ended up resigning in, in early March, um, sort of during the some of the most crucial moments of the campaign. But in, early in the campaign, her support was off the charts. Um, she had uh, more than 70 percent support. Um, and even higher among certain def- demographics in Nashville. Um, and so there's no question she was going to be a, a huge um, driving force of the plan's success uh, were she able to stay in, in office. And what was the vision for selling the plan? How did the, the transit supporters and the Barry administration plan to make the case to voters for this significant sales tax increase? Um I'd say the the messaging strategy that emerged in the um, kind of organized political campaign, which was funded by the Chamber of Commerce and uh, who who raised about three million dollars all to- told to support the campaign, um, and then hired a couple of of prominent local um, PR agencies to coordinate the campaign, um, including uh, McNeely, Pickett, and Fox, um, kind of in the lead. Um, their core message was um, uh, less traffic, more time for what matters. Um, They really hinged a lot of the messaging strategy on this idea that um, these transit investments would help reduce traffic in the region. Um, They also had a lot of other messages. Um, uh, Mayor Barry 
um, did a big event with AARP, um, emphasizing the benefits for seniors. Um, you had a lot of other kind of pieces of the rhetoric, but that traffic-focused message was really at the heart of it. And they made that judgment because traffic was polling as the number one issue. Um, that created a lot of problems later in the campaign because that's actually questionably true in the first place and certainly not the biggest benefit um, that, that transit provides. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So uh, what about this claim that investing in a light rail, bus rapid transit, neighborhood transit hub, et cetera, uh, would mean that Nashvilleians have less traffic in their, in their daily commutes or driving around town? I mean, is that a, is that a defensible claim from a policy standpoint? Um, it it sort of can be, but you really have to be massaging the the facts um, to to make the case. You can sort of say when you invest in a brand new, significantly improved transit system, it's going to pull a number of people out of their cars. But the it's but what what's referred to in the transportation field as the fundamental law of traffic congestion is that as soon as you take cars off of an existing road, um, people are going to start increasing development along that road. More people are going to move in. People are going to realize, oh, hey, that road has less traffic, so we're going to start driving on it. Basically, in the long run, traffic is going to return to normal. So what transit really provides in a fundamental fundamental way is the ability to move more people more efficiently on the same amount of street space that you had before. It creates new options, more moves people more affordably, um, more environmentally sustainably, um, reduces emissions uh, and pollutants uh, on a quarter, sort of improves public health. It provides all these other benefits. Um, it's complicated. So it's hard to message around that. So I, I didn't, I don't envy the work that the campaign had to do. But the traffic benefits are, again, sort of questionable and um, and certainly not the, the greatest selling point of transit in my mind. The tunnel under downtown was a very expensive component of this. The light rail is a very expensive component of this plan. What, you know, what were the benefits, I mean, why the emphasis on light rail in particular? Where did that come from? I think it goes back to what we were talking to earlier. I think part of it is kind of this idea of regional competitiveness and that to you know really be a real major city, um, you have to have trains. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I think there are value there is value that light rail can provide. Um, but from a transportation planning perspective, um, you know, buses can do all of the things that light rail was slated to do in this plan. The highest ridership uh, transit corridor proposed in the plan was forecast to have about 11,000 riders uh, per day. Um, there are more than 60 bus routes in New York that carry more riders than that every day in much worse traffic than Nashville has ever seen. Um, wow, that's incredible. So there are more than 60 bus lines in New York City, which today move more people than the Nashville light rail, than one of the than the most heavily used or the most heavily forecast light rail that Nashville would have built into this plan would have would have moved. Yeah, and I don't say that to suggest that um, that Nashville should have expectations of its bus routes carrying that many people. Nashville's development pattern is obviously a completely and utterly different thing from New York. But I say it just to say that buses are capable of doing a lot of transportation work. Um, and I think a lot more than than some leaders in Nashville have, have given them credit for. Right. When you look at the impact of light rail investments, I think that one thing that you see in other cities is it does increase development around light rail stations in particular. Um, it, it leads to denser development. It can increase property values in significant ways. Um, if you are thinking about what light rail would have actually achieved or would achieve if it was done, do you think that those are the likely uh, outcomes of that type of investment? Yeah, I think I mean there's there's truth in that, and then and there's there can be value even in a city that might not have the you know might not have really high ridership for a light rail line. There can be value in investing in light rail as a 
as a means of spurring development. And I think that that really was at the heart of a lot of the mayor's offices thinking about this as part of the the Nashville, you know, regional comprehensive plan, Nashville Next. Um, there are goals about um, you know increasing density along these core um, corridors and and neighborhood centers, um, and those are really important goals as well. Um, uh, so you likely would have seen probably a little bit more development than even if you had had implemented rapid bus service on those same same corridors. And the benefits of greater density in those areas are what exactly? So with greater density uh, along these kind of high capacity transit corridors, you can expect to harness more of the region's growth in a way that that contributes less to the regional transportation challenges that exist. Um, you. Also, as you alluded to with light rail investment, increase property values. Um, and um, so that can be a return to, to property owners in, in the city. Okay, great. So you've got this kind of interesting setup where the pro-transit campaign is running on a message, wh- which is that this is going to improve traffic. And, and that message is at the very least, it, it's open to, to some skeptical questioning. Uh, at the same, and then of course, uh, you know, the city learns of um, uh, Mayor Barry's um, affair. What impact does that revelation have on the transit campaign? Yeah, so I mean, the first and kind of most obvious implication is that the the pro transit uh, referendum folks lose their their chief spokesperson. So. Uh, Mayor Barry, again, it, her popularity aside, is just an incredible public speaker. Um, she's somebody who um, can really speak to people in a way that they feel resonates with them. And the Transit for Nashville campaign didn't have anybody who could take that place. Um, they scrambled to try to find that person. They couldn't. Um, they ended up using sort of uh, an array of different folks, um, none of whom could carry the campaign's message in the same way that, that Mayor Barry was was able to. Um, but the scandal also impacted the campaign in a few other less visible ways. Um, perhaps the most important of those was that the folks at the PR agencies who were leading the campaign were also some of the mayor's closest advisors. So those folks basically uh, left the transit campaign's work at a standstill while they were trying to manage this crisis and, and salvage the, the mayor's um, career as mayor. Um, then there are also some significant, I think, morale implications. You know, So many people who had dedicated their time, who were working full-time or more than full-time on this campaign, um, were doing so in part because you know, of the loyalty that they felt, of the kind of belief that they felt in the mayor. Um, and so I think you have a lot of those kind of intangible, intangible implications. Um, and then the last thing is that because the transit campaign kind of slowed down um, and lost focus during this crucial time, that really created an environment where the No Tax for Tracks campaign could capitalize hugely. They gained a tremendous amount of ground during during that time when the transit campaign was, was in disarray. Yeah, let's talk about that. So how did the opposition uh, react to this opening? Um, well, they made a conscious decision decision not to um, not to focus on the mayor's scandal. They believed rightly that that would that the mayor had dug her own hole and that the campaign had dug their own hole. They didn't need to to help them. Um, so they built their the their messaging strategy on a few different pillars. The first was, uh, and I I think. In general, they're designed to seed distrust in the community. So. Um, as you mentioned, the traffic messaging opened up an opportunity for the campaign to seize on that and say, the transit supporters are saying this is going to reduce traffic, but it's actually not. And they actually had pretty reasonable ground to stand on there. Um, they uh, produced a kind of famously misleading map that amplified that message, um, basically suggesting that only in the corridors with light rail would you see traffic reduction. Um, they seized on the fact that when the mayor's office had promoted the plan, they had emphasized this $5 billion cost number, but also included a cost number in the plan that, that showed that the cost would be closer to $9 billion. That's just different ways of doing the math. Um, but it was enough of an opening for this opposition campaign to say, 
they're trying to mislead you. It's actually going to be more expensive than than they say. Um, and at the same time that the most articulate proponent of the plan was taken out of action, the opposition found a very articulate spokesperson against the plan. That's right. So Jeff Obafemi Carr was brought on by the opposition campaign. He's a, a longtime community activist, um, a trained actor, an incredibly eloquent public speaker, um, and also a, a, on this campaign was a very effective um, strategist um, in, in developing the opposition's messages and, and bringing them to communities in, in a way that really resonated with them. And Carr, who is African-American himself, was also a really important um, messenger in supporting the opposition campaign strategy to drive a wedge in the African-American community. And I think that that's something that also is really important to, to discuss. Um, in terms of kind of why that was important to this referendum and why it was such a big blind spot, I think in the planning effort and and the the campaign that was run by by the transit supporters. Yeah, let's talk about uh, the role of African American voters and uh, transit system users. Uh, so obviously, African American voters are a, a very important voting constituency in Nashville Davidson County. Uh, African American and Latino writers. Uh, also uh, are a large share of uh, the ridership of current mass transit systems. Uh, you had indicated that current users <laughs> of mass transit were actually less supportive of the most ambitious plan. Uh, and yet uh, the Barry administration went forward with a very am- ambitious plan. Did they miss the importance of African-American support in this area? What what role did African-American voters, writers play in this entire process? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of pieces of kind of fundamental or foundational background knowledge that are useful to put out on the table. So a couple of statistics and a, a little bit of background on the, the choice of the May 2018 election. So you alluded to people of color being a big part of existing transit ridership. Um, in the Nashville MTA, or what's been rebranded as WeGo, it's about 50% of, of transit riders who are African-American. So not even counting uh, folks who are, are Latino um, uh, or uh, you know, other, other ethnicities and, and races. Um, uh, African-Americans comprise almost 30% of Nashville's population. Um, and the selection of the May 2018 election by the by the mayor um, was done in order to maximize the campaign's likelihood of of succeeding of passing a referendum. So they did these voter models that showed that was the election in 2018 that was likely to be the most favorable. Part of the reason that it's most favorable um, is that there's an unusually high turnout traditionally um, in the May elections. Of African American voters specifically, so, so there's just there's just so there's just an assumption that we're going to choose a selection cycle when history suggests there'll be high African American voter participation, and of course African American voters are going to like this plan because they're using the transit system, so they're going to like a more ambitious transit plan. Uh, that's right. That's right. And and again, usually that would be a reasonable assumption. Um, you know, African American voters are more likely to be progressive. They're more likely to ride transit. They're more likely to see those benefits. Um, but I think that the kind of strategic disconnect comes when the mayor's office decides that they're not going to do this public engagement, uh, like a new round of community conversations to inform the plan. And so they rely on the end motion process, having supplied, having done that work for them, when in that end motion process, and again, remembering that it's 29% of, of people in Nashville who are African-American, more than 50% who of, of transit riders, only 9% of the public comments in the end motion process came from African-American voices. And so the, the assumption that the end motion outreach process was sufficient to inform this plan where people are being asked a very different question. It's not, what do you think the vision should, of Nashville should be? It's, what should we do next? What should we raise taxes to pay for? What should we do right now? And those are different questions, and you need support from a different audience. You need voters to support it, not just the people who come to community meetings, the people who fill out the online forms. So instead of running an outward-facing process to get additional input, uh, 
the Barry administration was inwardly focused coming up with an ambitious an ambitious plan. Um, and at the same time, uh, if I remember correctly, the Barry administration had, had made some announcements and taken some actions uh, which angered important parts of the black community. Uh, her announcement around uh, repurposing Nashville General was a very controversial uh, announcement. Plans to uh, close the Bordeaux uh, Y in North Nashville uh, were controversial. So arguably, the Bay administration was not tending to a very important political constituency during this process. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say that to be a little bit generous, that these this kind of series of announcements, including about the YMCA, including General Hospital, including the Cloud Hill development um, at Fort Negley, um, at the site of Greer Stadium, um, and including earlier on the mayor's handling of the Jaquise Clemens shooting. Um, all of these things were definitely perceived as you know, being neglectful uh, and being sort of tone deaf um, among the African-American community. And uh, all f- with the exception of the, the police shooting, um, all of them happened after the mayor knew that this plan was going to happen. So there was a disconnect between um, the sort of strategic decision to choose this election where African-American votes were going to be even more important than usual, and they're already really important um, in in any election. Um, and then the this series of policy decisions, which, in retrospect, almost looks tailor made to alienate that that same community. Yeah. After Mayor Barry resigned, uh, uh, David Briley became mayor and inherited this transit um, initiative. He obviously supported it strongly. Was there a sense at that point that this was in trouble? Uh, did the new administration think that they had a chance of eking out a win? Um, as soon as the as soon as Mayor Barry resigned, uh, the uh, now Mayor Briley and his advisors had done some polling um, to basically see where support was at for his likely um, for his likely election campaign at that point they didn't know that for for sure that the election would be as soon as it was which was only about three weeks after the transit plan um, but they started doing that polling early and so in March it was clear that the tide had turned so after the uh, after mayor Barry's res- resignation it was clear that the measure wasn't going to pass. Um, and so they did know that. And so even though Briley was the only mayoral candidate in a field of 13 who was still supporting the plan, his support actually was a lot less than it might have been. Um, he you know, went to the press conferences. He spoke in favor of it. But he routinely tossed out the strongest talking points in favor of the plan. He toned down his rhetoric during that time. Um, and so his support actually wasn't as full-throated as, as it might have been. But he, that was because he knew that it was going down. What were the strongest talking points? I mean, what would a more full-throated case have looked like? Um, well, I, I think it's important to think about, you know, what the strongest talking points for this plan would have been as distinct for what the strongest argument for public transit in general would be. Um, for, for this plan, I think some of the strongest talking points were the ones that focused on you know, the benefits this would give to the communities who needed it the most. Um, there was, I think, in, especially later in the campaign, an emphasis on the immediate bus improvements. There were um, significant investments in bus service that would have happened immediately. Um, it's worth noting, however, that those improvements were less than even the least ambitious of the motion scenarios would have invested in bus service. So if you think about like what, what the campaign did emphasize and was able to emphasize, there were some great things. There were low-income, you know, fair subsidies for folks who needed that subsidy the most, in, which would have helped offset, offset the sales tax increases and, and so on and so forth. So there were a lot of great parts of the plan um, and that have, I think, con- and continue to have near universal support. What were the fair criticisms of the plan, in your opinion, and what criticisms were really unfair? Well, I think you can 
I, I think about sort of evaluating the plan on three different bases, sort of the process by which it was developed, the way that it was funded and financed, um, and then the actual like transportation benefits that the plan might have might have brought. Um, so in the first case on the process, um, it was an extremely fair criticism that you know this plan was developed without public outreach. That was something that the transit supporters, I think to this day, continue to feel is somewhat unfair. Um, but in my mind, there's no question. Um, there was no public outreach. This is a dramatically different question. Not only was it the right thing to do to go back to communities and say, what should we be doing if we're raising significant revenue, if we're making these big changes? Um, there's significant value in sort of informing the plan and figuring out what's going to work. But there's also such incredible strategic value. If you actually want to pass a plan, you need to get people's support. You need to get their buy-in. So I think that that was a huge blind spot um, and, and something that, that they were rightfully criticized for. Um, in terms of the, the funding and financing, um, I don't think that there really was another path. And that's a hard thing to message to say, well, we know that you don't like the sales tax. We know that the sales tax is regressive, but we don't have any other choice. That's a hard position to be in, but I think that it is the, is the reality. Um, I think that what you need to do with that reality is acknowledge that if you're increasing a regressive tax, you need to make sure that the transportation project list is working actively um, with equity as a foundational principle to make sure that the revenues are allocated to the communities who are going to be disproportionately burdened by that tax. And I think that it's clear that the project list, um, the balance of the budget in the Let's Move Natural plan did not accomplish that. There were some um, very equity-focused um, aspects of the plan. Again, the fare subsidies, some of the um, community transit center uh, investments, some of the crosstown routes that will help people navigate the system without having to go into downtown, um, improvements to the access ride program. There are these great um, components. There's a, a rail spur that was added at the mayor's insistence that would have gone up into North Nashville. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you still have 60 to 80% of the plan's budget, depending, again, on how you count, going to these light rail investments. Those investments are serving about 50% of the system's ridership. So in that sense, it kind of lines up, um, or it lines up more than I think opponents would have led you to believe. But on the other hand, you could have achieved those same transportation access benefits, made this money go a lot further, delivering a lot more benefits to these the people who need them most by toning down the light rail investment, putting more of that investment into improving bus service, improving walking access to bus facilities um, in ways that I think would also be good for the city and for the region. We all know how this ended in a um, overwhelming vote against the plan. What lessons do you think Mayor Briley's administration has learned from the defeat? And what ideas have they put forward uh, for transit going forward? I think that the most unfortunate thing that the Briley administration um, seems to have learned from this defeat, uh, which I think is wrong, is that that people in Nashville aren't ready for for major transit and transportation improvements. Um, I think the the chamber has done research that shows that it's still an overwhelming percentage of people in Nashville who support immediate um, immediate improvements to transit and to transportation systems and are ready um, still to um, to increase taxes in order to pay for it. Um, while it's often a disingenuous message that, you know, this isn't the right plan, let's do a different plan. In this case, I think that there was a lot of truth to it. And I think that even among a lot of the opponents, that was a message that was being delivered in, in good faith. Um, and that's, in my experience, rarely the case, but I, th I think that it really was here. Um, the Briley administration has put forward a couple of proposals for um, significant transit improvements on Dickerson Pike um, and more recently uh, on the Murfreesboro Pike potentially connecting to the airport. Um, I think those are potentially promising projects, but the timeline for those improvements is pretty uncertain. Um, they'll hinge on the city's ability to, to get funding support from a couple of other partners, including, um, including the airport itself. Um, in the case of Murfreesboro. And so we'll see how those things go. Um, there's a lot of value in like implementing near-term improvements, sort of 
showing what major transit improvements could look like, um, it's really hard for people to understand what a really high-quality bus service, what a really high-quality transit service would look like in Nashville um, because people haven't seen it. Um, and so there's there's value in that. Um, but I think that I, I, I would like to see the mayor be being more ambitious, uh, more open to um, to bigger improvements in the near term. There's a new plan uh, circulating called the Nashville Community Transportation Platform. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so the Nashville Community Transportation Platform came uh, out of conversations um, among about 13 independent nonprofit uh, community organizations in Nashville, um, organizations which by and large uh, represent people who um, who who need improvements in transportation access, who um, maybe their household owns one car, maybe they own no cars. Um, they ride transit, they walk, they ride bikes. Um, and uh, these organizations got together um, to go through basically a consensus-based process to develop what they think would be a powerful, action-oriented agenda for the next metro government. So um, in August, we have both mayoral and and council-wide elections. Um, What should be the agenda of the council and of the mayor who come into power um, following this next election? And so that's the question that that this group endeavored to answer. Yeah, and talk about about the type of transit improvements they have in mind. What would... would you know, their proposal look like? What do they prioritize? Well, I think um, the the platform is based on on four principles, four kind of core principles that inform the specific projects um, that, and, and policies that are called for in the platform itself. So the four principles are, are equity, safety, resilience, and quality. Um, so in terms of equity, um, you know, the next transportation plan um, and the next government's transportation priorities should focus on the people who need these improvements the most. Um, people who, again, maybe can't afford to drive or you know, have to already make trade-offs about when they're going to be able to drive, when the other people in their household are going to be. Um, th- safety, um, you know, we need Nashville streets to be safe for, for all users, people who are choosing to walk or bike or drive or take transit. Um, and currently, they're only safe for people who are driving. If you take transit, you have to walk there. Um, as, as we all know, we're, we're limited on sidewalk capacity. Um, and even with, where there are sidewalks, there's still a lot of safety concerns. Um, resilience, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're keeping Nashville's air clean. Um, uh, you know, uh, we need to make sure that we're doing our part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and then on quality, you know, we need to give people high quality transportation options. Um, people won't choose to walk and won't choose to bike and won't choose to take transit. Um, modes of transportation, which Metro Nashville has prioritized in all of their plans, all of their you know policy documents that have been produced, um, but we're not seeing that in practice. We're not seeing people who have these high quality options, places where it's safe to walk, safe to bike, and where they can feel confident that when they walk to a bus stop, there will be a bus that comes to pick them up in a timely fashion. What are some cities that do transit well, in your opinion? In the U.S., any conversation about high-quality transit, you know, starts in the cities who have been built around high-quality transit networks. So those are, you know, legacy cities like New York and Boston and so on and so forth. Um, But cities who today are really making a dramatic uh, push to transform their transportation systems, who have made transportation improvements a priority, um, I'd say Seattle is is at the head of that of that pack in the U.S. Um, they have um, made substantial investments in their bus system over the course of the past about 15 years. Um, they're the only city in the country that has seen consistent and sustained increases in transit ridership in walking and biking. Um, they've managed uh, and made it a priority um, to make sure that uh, people who are driving into jobs downtown, um, like that that number doesn't increase. There are going to be no more people who drive into downtown Seattle, even though the region continues to grow really fast. Um, And they've laid out an agenda and actually implemented it on a timeline that, that that kind of ambitious goal calls for. 
This has been a fascinating uh, conversation, Zach. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your results. When will the case study be published, and will that be available to the public? So the case study exists now uh, as a draft. Um, With Transit Center, we're going to be uh, reviewing it with all the folks that we interviewed to make sure that that it's accurate, that um, uh, we're reflecting what happened honestly, um, and then presenting our perspective on it. Um, when it will be published, probably uh, in the next two to three months. Where can listeners find more information about the Nashville Community Transportation Platform? So the Nashville Community Transportation Platform is accessible now at nashvilletransportation.org. You can see a list of uh, both mayoral and metro council candidates who have endorsed it. Um, You can also sign up there to get more information and just to, to read the plan itself. For those of you who are still listening, I want to reward you with an incredible uh, final coda to this conversation, in addition to being an exceptionally well-informed transit and transportation expert. uh, Zach uh, is also the uh, creative force behind another website called Churning Man. He is an ice cream expert. And on this beautiful spring day, it seems appropriate to turn in these final minutes to a discussion of the Nashville ice cream scene. Hold on. We're about to get serious. Zach, how, where did Turning Man come from? Whence this interest? Yeah, so I, I really got interested in making ice cream about 10 years ago. Um, and it was this kind of epiphany, just understanding that you could make ice cream at home. Um, which is, you know, ice cream is something that we go out for. It's something that you go to an ice cream shop, you buy a pint of ice cream. Um, but realizing that it was something that you, that you could just do at home was was a big deal for me. So I got an ice cream machine. And, and since then, um, I think it's evolved into something a little bit more than a hobby for me. Um, so Turning Man is a place where I uh, write about ice cream from a few different perspectives. Um, But for me, one of the things that's been most interesting is understanding um, kind of the science of ice cream, which is both a solid, a liquid, and a gas all at once. Um, It's everything except for plasma. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. and uh, and so it's chemically fascinating. I, again, I'm an engineer by training, so that kind of nerdy stuff is really interesting to me. But it's also something that's universal uh, that people connect with, you know, from from all uh, all backgrounds, all walks of life. For those of us who want to go out for ice cream, what what's the best ice cream in Nashville? Let's just put it on the line. This is a hard one for me. Um, I'd say that my favorite ice cream shops in Nashville. Um, have tended to have like a little bit more of a classic vibe. Um, so I love Mike's downtown. Um, I think that they do a great job. Um, I think that Nashville ice cream scene is really missing sort of a high quality, like artisanal, like local ice cream brand. And that's something that I really hope uh, hope somebody plans to launch soon. <laughs> Tuscaninis in Cambridge near Zach's old MIT haunts. If you're listening, come to Nashville. <laughs> that, that would be great. I would I would help Tuscaninis develop a franchise in Nashville if they're listening. All right. Well, if we don't make progress on transit in the next couple of years, that this is another option for you, Zach. Thank you again for your time. It's been wonderful having you. Thanks so much. <laughs>